Welcome to The Brainstorm, a podcast and video series from ARK Invest. Tune in every week as we react to the latest in innovation and reflect on how short-term news impacts our long-term views. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Investment Management LLC is an SEC-registered investment advisor. ARK and Public are unaffiliated entities and do not have a relationship with respect to either firm marketing or selling the products or services of the other. And therefore, ARK disclaims responsibility for any loss that may be incurred by public's clients or customers. The information provided in this show is for informational purposes only and should not be used as the basis for any investment decision and is subject to change without notice. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK and investors should determine for themselves whether a particular investment management service is suitable for their investment needs. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC and or show guests and are not endorsements by ARC of any company or security or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in the show may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements. ARC assumes no obligation to update any forward-looking information. ARC and its clients, as well as its related persons, may, but do not necessarily, have financial interests in securities or issuers that are discussed. Certain information was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information obtained from any third party. Welcome to The Brainstorm, episode 18 here. Today we're talking Ozempic and other GLP-1s learn what that stands for. We're going to be talking AI companions. And then lastly, we'll touch on Tesla's recent price cuts. Allie, thank you for joining us. Sure. Um, maybe we just dive right in. GLP-1, what does that stand for? Okay, you're probably never going to say the full word again, but for anyone that wants to know, it stands for glucogen-like peptide 1 receptor agonists. Um, and these have been in the media a ton. Uh, these are the so-called weight loss drugs, typically known for uh, diabetes, but um, have been sort of, I, you know, everyone is talking about them for their weight loss properties. Um, so essentially, it's, it's a medication that basically stimulates the release of insulin um, that helps lower your blood sugar level. And then it also makes the emptying of food from your stomach slower. Uh, into your small intestine. And what that does is it makes you feel fuller for longer and it makes you want to eat less. Um, we've also heard it helps with sort of curbing your um, your cravings too, like your sugar cravings or things for uh, unhealthy foods. And it also can help even with things like tobacco or anything that may cause you to become um, addicted. So addictive behavior may also be helpful. Um, but what we're thinking of for GLP-1, so there's a lot of research done on, you know, how they fare and the different companies that are working on it, including like Nova Nordis and Lilly, uh, two of the biggest uh, that are working on it currently in the space. But what we're kind of focused on is like, how does this shift spend? Um, and we think that's a really important topic because um, if you can see the chart or if not, um, healthcare spending is continuing to rise, which I don't think is surprising to anyone to find out, but it's not necessarily leading to better health outcomes. So if we look kind of in the 1980s, healthcare spend as a percent of GDP was around uh, 8%. Um, but then if we look into 2030, our projection is that it can get as high as 
20%, um, which is obviously an increasingly high number. And if we're going to spend that much, uh, we at least want to see better health outcomes. And we're seeing that, um, unfortunately, the United States is an outlier, meaning that according to DALI, which looks at uh, disability life years, um, so a disability adjusted life year. And if you look at that compared to healthcare spending as a percent of GDP, we can see that United, the United States spends a lot of money on healthcare, but does not get particularly good disability adjusted life years, um, meaning that our, our health outcomes are not good compared to many other countries. Um, conversely, the Republic of Korea actually spends less on healthcare and has better health outcomes. Um, but in the United States, we spend about 4.3 trillion, um, and about 16% of that is spent on healthcare therapeutics, so medications. Um, other things that we spend on are indirect costs, like you know you missed work or you're unable to show up and be productive at work, um, or other direct costs like nursing um, hours or things like driving to an appointment or going to a physician's office. And so what ARC believes is that in the future, we're going to shift the bucket of spend increasingly into therapeutics. And what's interesting about GLP-1s is that they have already started to shift um, some of the bucket of money. So for example, we're seeing bariatric surgeries. Um, people are spending a little bit less on that and more actually on um, the drugs. We know that when Walmart reported, they talked about um, a decrease in their sales of food, but an increase in their sales of um, prescriptions. So an overall uh, you know, benefit, but um, just interesting to see the decreases and the increases in particular categories. Um, and so we Ellie. think, yeah. Sorry, I have one question just to help give some more context. I think on Fridays, it may have been you or maybe someone else in the brainstorm. This is being prescribed to how much of the U.S. population today? I thought it was, I think someone said 9 or 10%. Yeah. And then, you know, and just hearing you speak about it, it does sound like this miracle weight loss drug. What are yeah, some what's of the, the downsides? Catch? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So um, as with anything, there are downsides. Um, one, it's relatively new. Uh, we've known about it for a long time, but the mass amount of people taking it, um, you know, we'll see. Um, there were reports in Europe about uh, suicidal ideation. It was very small study though. And, you know, the other thing is, is that, um, you know, maybe people who were overweight had some suicidal ideation based on other things that were going on with them. We don't know, but that was a, a relatively small uh, sample. Um, but there are things that can happen. So one of the ones that I think we discussed on Brainstorm was nausea. Um, so this can cause a lot of nausea, which can help you with curbing your appetite. Um, it can cause things like gastrointestinal symptoms like vomiting, diarrhea. You can get abdominal pain, constipation, bloating, gas, all all the good gastrointestinal stuff. Um, also, just so everyone knows, um, there is an oral, but most of these are injections. Um, so you're injecting them into some, some area of fat, um, which means that you can get like an injection issue. So um, this is also self-injection. So you're doing it to yourself at home once a week. Most of them are once a week. Um, so you can get some type of like injection site issue, you know, whether that's redness or rash or anything like that. Um, 
obviously one of the symptoms is decreased appetite, but most people are very happy about that one. Um, you can get things like pancreatitis, which is like a, an inflammation of your pancreas. Um, you can get gallbladder problems, kidney problems, um, hypoglycemia, so your blood sugar can be very low. Um, also, they've seen some connection in my studies um, with uh, thyroid tumors, and so you wouldn't get a thyroid tumor, um, but they have shown that there was um, increasing suspicion that maybe there's some kind of association between GLP-1 receptor agonists and maybe um, certain types of thyroid tumors, um, maybe medullary thyroid cancer. Um, and so, yeah, there, there are definitely reports that we've seen, um, but with the amount of people taking it, like you mentioned, 9 to 10 percent, um, you know, I, there's not been a ton of reports. And so I think people are continuing to take it. We also talked about the fact that it could be severely underreported because um, people that are taking it through insurance are probably the ones that we know of. Um, but, you know, there have been other people and, and clinics popping up everywhere that we've seen. And I don't know whether those are being reported or not, because a lot of people are paying out of pocket. And maybe just for context, like out of pocket, you could pay 500 to 1000 and maybe up. Um, a month for these drugs, um, whereas if you had insurance, um, you'd probably be paying twenty-five to thirty dollars a month. So, mm -hmm. big difference. <laughs> yeah, got it. Thank you so much, Allie. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. All right, now we're switching gears to AI companions, AI hardware proliferation. We've got Andrew Kim joining us and Reggie James. Reggie is the founder and CEO of Eternal. Reggie, maybe you want to give a quick quick background, then Andrew, you can tee up the topic here. For sure, quick background on Eternal or on hardware and AI? On yourself, your oh, background, sure. why, 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 you're, why, why you're an expert in this area. You've, you've thought <laughs> about this. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've been thinking about hardware a lot. Um, I went to Penn with Sam, and um, I've been working on my company Eternal for... Uh, will be five years in November. We're primarily in spatial. So we've been, you know, on a long quest of kind of building out kind of uh, like non-gaming, like spatial apps, um, primarily in social and media. Right now, we kind of cracked something in like kind of spatial live streaming. So you can kind of think about the things Fortnite has done with either Dragon Ball Z or Travis Scott as um, spatial live streaming, one utilizing kind of... Um, an avatar that's on rails, another one utilizing kind of screens within virtual spaces. Um, and so, yeah, our app eternals in the app store. And we, we just think a lot about kind of like spatial and are starting more experiments in AI and um, just smarter NPCs. I haven't like really branded the term just yet, but smarter NPCs that are a new form of interactive media. And then on hardware, I've been just kind of hardware whispering to a lot of hardware startups um, and helping consult on brand and product and really believe we're in sort of a new hardware era coming out of iPhone singularity and been writing a lot and putting together talks and uh, a conference very soon on um, on new hardware with, with new hardware founders and getting everyone together in the space. Nice. Then, Andrew, maybe we just dive it right in. Why is it so hard to monetize AI NPCs? <laughs> or, or just or go go right sure, into the AI. Sure. 
Yeah, let's just talk about consumer AI applications as a whole. So we've been doing a lot of work on AI companionship with the explosion in chatbots uh, that consumers have witnessed in the past year or so. And more specifically, and like listeners will be able to see specific charts on this week's Sunday newsletter. Uh, we see a huge disparity between the net direct monetization rates per engaged hour of consumer AI applications and co uh, comparable mature digital entertainment platforms, right? For example, we estimate that character AI, which we've talked about before, uh, monetized at a rate of 0.002 cents per engaged hour this past August, which is basically around 5% the rate of Roblox in 2022. And similarly, Replica, uh, another kind of companion AI app, monetized at a rate of 75 cents per engaged hour in 2022 or 22% the rate of OnlyFans. Um, and we can attribute this monetization delta to a lot of reasons, right? One being the market's super early, right? Many players are prioritizing user and engagement growth over monetization. So we could see these rates reach parity simply as time progresses and the market matures. We could also look at the human premium, right? But we could also argue that as large language models become more and more performant, one day AI output across any medium would be like indistinguishable from human creation. And that human premium probably would close and maybe some sort of like vintage premium would exist, right? And we could also look at it from the perspective of like pure tech deflation. And I think like ARC has been talking a lot about just like all these different productivity case studies, like the GitHub Copilot study, the UC San Diego like patient response study, the HBS BCG study, or even the like the GPT-4 results on like all these exams itself. Um, we've seen direct proof that AI is executing tasks at the level or even better than that of an average human, right? At a fraction of the cost. So there's like a lot of question, I think, still in terms of like who eats that the bulk of that gap, right? Is it the end consumer? Is it the application? Or is it the foundation models themselves? Like what gets commoditized? What margins are hurt? Um, I have no idea. We'll, we'll see. And just one, and one last potential reason that I think is worth discussing here and is like a great segue into like the hardware multiplicity that Reggie talks about a lot. Um, I think it's pretty compelling to consider like AI's current lack of audiovisual immersion as a primary contributor to this monetization gap in that consumers currently primarily interact with AI entertainment via text, right? With pretty limited audiovisual features. And it's reminiscent of the non-arcade video game market of the mid seventies to early eighties. In that um, in 1975, we estimate that nearly 60% of non-arcade video games uh, were game releases in the year, sorry, were text-based or spreadsheet video games, right? And console games generated around $6 billion in revenue in today's terms uh, in 1975, um, which is like very, very tiny compared to approximately like $92 billion of la uh, as of last year. And by 1996, text and spreadsheet games represented less than 1% of annual game releases. So this shift from text-based and spreadsheet games to more immersive 2D and by the 90s 3D games enabled video games to kind of tap the masses and grow to the size that it is today. And of course, this shift was made possible 
by Moore's law and other cost declines associated with you know custom graphics chips, uh, memory, etc. Right, and we're already seeing movements towards more audiovisual audio immersion. Uh, I think Nick probably talked about it in last week's brainstorm about you know Meta's AI avatars and the Meta Ray-Ban uh, smart glasses, right? And uh, we saw all these AI wearables that were showcased last week, or, or, or was it two weeks ago now? Um, Tab, Rewind, Pendant, the human, Humane AI pin. Um, and yeah, as Reggie mentioned before, I, I think it bears the question of like, what happens to the mobile user interface, right? If we are actually going through like this hardware paradigm shift and um, like, how like what will ai applications right. look like as in will they reside within the application or will they be on the operating system layer like a lot well, of so we interesting yeah, questions that remain we do unanswered have, we yeah. do have reggie so let's let's open up maybe this question and just after hearing what andrew is talking about reggie i see you're taking some notes so i'm curious what your what your thoughts are just you know on the hardware side because it does seem that you know as you move from text to audio to you know maybe 3D spatial maybe the mobile phone the operating system iOS Android isn't the right uh, vector for this growth maybe we need more hardware so what are your thoughts for sure well yeah so i i think there's a, a couple things there right um, one exercise i i used to like doing is kind of looking at what if Apple treated its microphone the same way it treated its camera, right? Which is essentially to say like, you know, this has progressed with like three, all kind of doing different things, um, including frontal, you know, but the microphone is largely the same and Siri is unfortunately largely the same. Um, and it kind of just shows um, in part Western culture values right like we value the eye over the ear significantly um and so it's it's clear that they've had their path and and one thing about hardware unlike software is that when you make a decision in hardware you have to live with it for far longer of a um, maturity cycle than you do with software right um and so i i think some of apple's values just don't align with some of the uh pieces of the three that you mentioned, right? The AI pin, um, Avi and Tab, and then, you know, I don't really <laughs> care about Rewind, but, you know, the fast follow of, of Rewind as a, as a result of this, right? And it, it's living off of a completely different kind of interaction um, vector, particularly Avi, and, I, and I've chatted with Avi and, um, and kind of know a bit about that product. What's interesting, though, is that Avi's pairs with... Um, with the phone, right? There's like a, there's a tab app in which it's helping contextualize and um, not just sort of get activated like we typically do with AI chat interfaces in which it can't start anything. Um, Avi's can start um, towards you, which I think changes the paradigm completely. Um, I think the other th thing about um, that in terms of what happens with the iPhone is I think the iPhone continues to push more into entertainment space than um, broad-based application. You know, the very classic launch of the iPhone is like, it's a phone, it's an internet communication device, it's an iPod. And I think it's going to just shift more into entertainment. And this is like the fun glass. And then I think 
the other devices are going to be um, opening some new vectors of kind of a utilitarian landscape, right? Uh, Tab is very much about memory recall and it's very much a work device. I think the demos of Humane um, also are quite, I mean, that's an anti, uh, at least visual media device, right? No kid is watching TikTok projected onto their hand. Um, so there are some real hard opinions there that are somewhat anti-consumer media, um, at least from a visual perspective, which kind of dominates the social media s- sphere, right? Between Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. This is far more audio-based and uh, yeah, utility. Yeah, it's Do interesting think- to hear what just one point here, Sam, because I think what Reggie is saying is extremely interesting, especially when you think about the evolution of how these AI assistants will evolve. Um, if you think about the chatbot today, I think largely what both you and Andrew are, are are noting is that the entertainment space is largely maybe untouched by this evolution of AI for a portion of its growth. Uh, I think it'll disrupt entertainment in a larger form over time. But I think when you when you embed an AI assistant or chatbot, what where you can really start to have a profound impact is at the consumer services level. And so I gave this example, I forget who I was talking to, but I have, you know, six or seven different, you know, airline apps on my phone. And it makes sense that if I have, I'm wearing tab or, you know, one of these AI uh, hardware devices, I can just speak into or interact with that AI and it books out all of the services I need, or is just intuitively listening to my conversations and prompting me then to go and, you know, check Delta for flights. And I think that's where it begins to obfuscate around the app layer versus the OS. I think it beco- it like sits into this intermediary position um, where it is both the application and the operating system as one. And I think it disrupts services first and then entertainment in a broader sense later. It's, you know, it's disrupting entertainment today, but I don't think it's going to really, you know, have a profound impact on Instagram or or, or TikTok for, you know, a few years. I mean, on, on the application piece, oh, so, sorry, Andrew. Yeah, oh, no, please I mean, go on ahead. the application piece, you know, the main reason we want to have some sort of smooth interfaces because, you know, we know our preferences most intimately, right? So we want to be able to sort through that. But at the end of the day, you know, that's just an API surfacing that information. And as long as my agent has some awareness of my preferences or can surface two to three of my preferences. It takes a lot of that just sort of, okay, let me scroll. Okay. Let me type in like New York JFK to LAX. Like all that can just go into here are the three flights. Let me, and it's going to know your preferences. And then it'll just be like, do you want to buy JFK to LAX at 6am? Yes. You know, like it, it moves really quickly. And then it becomes a question of like, okay, well, what are, the roles of like any sort of aggregator, right? If my OS can be that aggregator, right? So things like, um, what is it called? Like Priceline type businesses, Expedia type businesses, really I think are the things that really come into question um, in in this environment. Totally agree. To to what you're saying, Reggie, I think this applies beyond just uh, commerce, but software broadly and connectivity. And I've said this before, but it's like right now we take for granted or we don't 
appreciate how bad software is, right? It seems amazing because it never existed before, right? Amazon one-click checkout, right? Like, wow, this is frictionless. This is amazing. E-commerce is booming. It's like, wow, you know, the workday kind of extended because of mobile and now you're always at your job. And it's like, that's just the beginning. You know, one-click checkout is still a pain because you have to do this curation, right? right. Google Flights, search through all of that. You know, it still seems like we're unconnected if you leave your phone at home or it's like, you know, off for whatever reason. And then we're going to enter this phase where curation is that next level of frictionless software. And, you know, if you're wearing an AI wearable, you know, your life becomes connected. And if you're doing a job that's connected to the computer, it becomes even more 24-7 than you'd ever have imagined. Andrew, I know you were trying to jump in. Sam, just to maybe coin a, a term here, but I think what you and Reggie just surfaced for me is like we're moving to one search checkout, right? You just have this search brought to you and it's just exactly what you want and you don't need to really do anything after that. So it compresses the funnel of search, checkout, shopping, online into a kind of instantaneous transaction that you didn't really even think you maybe wanted or needed. But when you see it in front of you, you're like, wow, that's exactly what I was thinking I, I was going to do. I like it. I like it. One click checkout after hours of browsing Amazon reviews to single search checkout. Single search checkout. I think what's interesting here, though, is that in order for like an OS level AI assistant to be that personalized or be able to handle that kind of curation, I think what was kind of implied, correct me if I'm wrong, um, with these new hardware, um, AI hardware is like the continuous listening and ingestion portion, right? And my question is like in terms of like consumer privacy i feel like the iphone at launch wasn't really feared as a surveillance tool and that association kind of developed as the app store ecosystem grew and there were you know controversies around individual apps um but I, I, but i think like with these new ai hardware examples that we discussed it seems like that kind of quote unquote surveillance aspect is the initial value add so i'm just wondering like does that pose a material obstacle to user adoption? Yeah, I think it, I think it always does, um, particularly because I think part of the reason we didn't view the iPhone as surveillance is because like surveillance capitalism hadn't even been written yet, right? Like I don't even think we had that language. Um, and at the end of the day, there was there's there still is like a deep trust um, around Apple as a brand, right? Um, so I think the brand trust, the brand storytelling is going to be a key differentiator in like what anyone is willing to put on their body. And that, that has nothing to do with form factor. That has nothing to do with anything, you know, unless it's a giant freaking bleeping thing, obviously that form factor would get destroyed. Um, then, then I think, you know, there's so many, um, ways for that data storage to happen and whether you know it's folks leveraging kind of like web3 tech whether it's a sense of like no this data lives on my you know personal device and it's non-networked and the way that 
your hardware and software gets upgraded is just like hardcore like model upgrades and not necessarily something that has to do with like the uh, parent company cleaning through your data. You know, I think we are going to have to unleash a new sense of when we update software, what are we touching versus not touching, right? Because I think there's a sort of cultural understanding right now that all of my apps, all the data of my apps live external to me. And I think part of what's cool about um, new hardware just as a category is we can reset or present new values on how we think about personal data and how, how those companies think about personal data and how to leverage personal data, ultimately for the benefit of the end user, right? And that means that maybe the software that leverages that data is going to change drastically. I think that's what like, you know, LLMs represent that, crypto has represented that for a while. Um, yeah. Reggie, yeah. I'm curious, I have a, one question for you. Uh, you know, in hearing you talk about these new hardware devices and hearing the story about Avian Tab and how it is integrated into the iPhone, do you think that Apple has a chance to help create this new ecosystem or do they just stand against, every, you know, the values of what this new evolution in hardware could be? I think uh, the change of the to the USB-C port at the end of the iPhone is a deceptive way that they can support it tomorrow, you know? And I think like jailbreaking is gonna come back into style because of that within like a, a niche scene, right? But if they recognize that like, okay, this is from all like, you know, early 2000s standards, like a supercomputer today um, and how that can be leveraged, you know, they already have some soft ideas between like even sharing power, right? It's kind of a, it's small, but it's a really sick, just like base concept of like, yeah, this thing is also a battery for your friend's device. Um, but I think, I think Apple is just so, you know, they, they have to now be on the defensive um, when it comes to privacy that I don't think they can take that sort of cultural stance. They can't like take a, um, any object can plug into this core object, right? Because then I think, you know, the, the counter forces to that image, I think are too great for them. Right. Um, so it's gonna have to be more traditional in how they do it, which is like Bluetooth and things like that today. Um, but people are already doing USB-C things. I, I have friends doing it now, um, so we'll right. see. And it's, you talk about form factor too, right? Whether or not Apple's actually to execute, you know, everyone throws out AirPods, you throw a camera on them. Or even, you know, the Apple Watch, if you want to talk about a innocuous way to record everything, it's like you wear a pendant around your neck, you wear a pin, you know, those are like classic, this, this person's a spy. Yes. Right? If, you're, if, you're, if you're just wearing, if you're just wearing a watch, that's a far more innocuous uh, form factor. Or, or at least a cooler spy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so then I guess uh, Andrew and Reggie will... Answer answer simultaneously. I'll give you a countdown. Uh, what what percent of uh, the population will be wearing or will you know have a non smartphone hardware device uh, in twenty thirty? 
All right. You, you guys ready? Andrew? Three, two, one. 80%. Wow. wow. Oh. And <laughs> delayed and 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 low. All right. Well, let's let's just let's let's dig into this a little and then and then we can wrap it up. Why why the huge discrepancy here? I guess Andrew, we'll start with yours. Why why 10? Well, I'm just thinking about like how we moved from just mobile in the late I guess early 80s into the iPhone moment that took a while. So I was just thinking along those lines in terms of um, like sm to get to smartphone adoption, but maybe I should backtrack and think about just mobile adoption as a proxy. Um, but I don't know, I haven't really done the work here. You're kind of putting me on the spot. That's why it's a brainstorm. Reggie, <laughs> Reggie, 80%, 80 that's, okay. that's pretty full adoption. So what, what's, what are you thinking? Yeah, I just think our speed cycles are faster, you know, to to Andrew's point. Like, I, I just think, uh, did people think ChatGPT would have, like, the adoption curve it did? Like, I think we're just going faster. And naturally, you know, ChatGPT and then two and then three, like, those were quiet. And then it was explosive, right? Um, but let's say this is not a good comparison. But I just think about companies that were quiet and then huge adoptions, like Roblox was quiet for, like, you know, six years ish then huge chat gpt or open ai in general quiet for like three years ish four years ish and then like really popping and i think that's just going to keep compressing i also think like avi built this piece of hardware basically off of like you know adderall and work <laughs> ethic from april to its first hundred units sold you know, in like October 1st or end of September, right? That is like the, our ability to build first versions of things and really get that feedback loop in on hardware is compressing. You know, it didn't take him a trip to Taiwan. Other things will, a lot of things will. You, Humane, you know, I assume they're flying to Taiwan nonstop, right? And so I'm not, I'm not uh, saying that it's, still not hard and insanely labor intensive but i think the uh speed is genuinely faster i think the hunger is is really there and it's not uh the same switching costs as let's say android right like some of these devices will be accessories and not full replacement tab is an accessory humane is trying to be a full replacement right that's why they demoed a phone call i think if you asked me for replacement devices i'd be like mm, ah, ah. You know, if you're just saying AI hardware in general, that either it sits on your desk or it sits on you or, you know, it's some companion device that that I could just see as, as significantly higher or faster. Amazing. Andrew and Reggie. I was thinking about mobile, no, like, no, replacement. You don't get a, you don't so get maybe give me you some credit on the low balling of the number. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was. That, that's how I understood the question. That's, that's but fair. I'll... I'll We'll see. Amazing. Right, thank you. Uh, Andrew and Reggie, thank you so much for joining. And I'm sure we'll have many more of these conversations as the development does happen quite rapidly. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Nick, now on to the last topic of the day. We've got Tesla cutting prices. Slashing um, prices. 
slashing. Uh, and that's what, that's what I want to address. I would, first, I just want to put this in context and I'll uh, pull up a chart here so everyone can see. And really what you can see is that this is going just below where prices were in the 2019 timeframe. And so you had this uh, peak over COVID and that was a lot of supply chain issues, commodities spiked, and now the prices are coming down. Uh, I actually think this is going to be foreshadowing what will happen to other automakers. And then the other element I want to just flag here quickly is that um, the Model Y and Model 3 are less expensive without subsidies than the average new car in the United States. So average new car, 48,000, um, and the Model Y and Model 3 are below that. And with batteries and electric vehicles, you know, we're, we are seeing cost declines. So for a long time, it was, okay, when do we get to price parity? Last year we were at price parity, but then there was a number of price fluctuations as macro environments changed. Now we're back below price parity. And what I tweeted out was saying, you know, life after price parity is fun. There's no reason why batteries, which are the largest cost input into electric vehicles, should stop at price parity, right? That's just a, that'd be quite the coincidence if that was it. Um, and so what we should see and what Wright's Law suggests is we'll continue to see costs for electric vehicles decrease. And you'll either have new models come out, costs will continue to come down, or kind of tying back to the iPhone, you'll see that you know these existing models will sit in the same price segment, but performance will continue to increase dramatically. Uh, and so I think this is really exciting. I think there's a lot of noise out there talking about you know price cuts, should they be advertising? You know, I think it's worth taking a step back and, and seeing where this is in the context of overall cost declines and where EV prices are going overall. Yeah, I think I agree with you. <laughs> I mean, you know my thoughts on the, uh, the chart that you had around the price cutting with Tesla, which I think is, you know, interesting because interest rates are much higher today than they were three or four years ago. And so this is, I think, a move by Tesla to stimulate demand. Um, and I think Elon's even gone on record saying that, you know, they uh, are happy to forego, you know, revenue and, and profit today um, because they believe that the autonomous opportunity tomorrow is much greater than the profits they get from just selling an, a, a car today. Um, so they just want to seed the market with as many vehicles as they can. Um, and I think you also have another chart which shows that, you know, what a consumer would pay to finance a Tesla today um, versus I think in 2019, Sam, is pretty much the same, even though the interest rate environment has changed drastically, which I think yeah, is I'm, I'm glad, great for the I'm consumer. You, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I was going to forget it otherwise. So interest auto loan. Uh, you know, just quickly pulled 2019, it was like 4.7% in 2023, it's like 7.5%. So that's a 57% increase in the interest rate for auto loans. And so you have the vehicle, monthly vehicle price, assuming 20% down payment, staying roughly identical uh, between 2019 
end today. So exactly what you're saying. Um, obviously, demand at a certain price is the way the uh, re real world works. And so Tesla is making sure that consumers can still afford the vehicle despite this 57% increase in uh, interest rates. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us this week. We will be back next week with more exciting topics. Hope you enjoyed. Leave comments and questions, and we'll try and address them. Uh, all right. See everyone. All right. See everyone.